You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. This episode is a recording of our recent event, The Role of Parliamentarians in Atrocity Prevention. Good morning. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm very pleased today to welcome you for an important online discussion about the role of parliamentarians in atrocity prevention. Uh, Very pleased on behalf of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, I'd like to thank my colleagues Jones and Ebley um, and Lauren Salim and Marie Lamanche for helping organize this. And particularly would also like to thank Parliamentarians for Global Action, uh, a partner of MIGS that we've worked with in the past for uh, being a co-sponsor of this event. Um, as many, uh, some of you might know, uh, parliamentarians have an important role to play in preventing mass atrocity crimes, but very often um, they're underutilized or, or, or overlooked. So we're going to have a really in-depth discussion with three fantastic speakers about what can be done, what, what's the role of parliamentarians, what, what power and policies they can put in place, and talk about some of the general um, uh, cases of, of concern where we see massive abuses of human rights around the world in 2021. So today I'm going to introduce in the order of, of, of speaking. So our first guest is Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire. Uh, General Dallaire is MIGS's Distinguished Senior Fellow. He's the founder of the Dallaire Institute for Children, Peace and Security. Uh, he was the force commander of the UN peacekeeping mission in Rwanda during the genocide in 94. And he was a former uh, senator of Can- in, in the Canadian Senate. Uh, followed, we have uh, Alice Deritu, Alice is the UN, uh, the UN Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide. She's an Under Secretary General of the United Nations. Uh, and Alice is, is a, is a, has worked long on peace building and protecting human rights across the African subcontinent internationally. So we're very glad to have Alice join us today. And uh, followed by Alice, we'll have David Donacatin. Uh, David um, is a Secretary General of Parliamentarians for Global Action. Uh, MIGS has worked very closely with, um, with David in the past, particularly for the Milan Forum on Preventing Violent Extremism and Mass Atrocities. So we're very pleased to have all three of them join us today. Uh, now I would like to pass the floor to General Dallaire. General Dallaire, um, you, uh, as becoming appointed a senator in 2007, uh, you formed the, um, the all-party parliamentary prevention genocide um, within the Canadian Parliament. So I think it'd be a great time to have you take the floor and, and talk about your views on why why parliamentarians have a role to play in atrocity prevention and what can be done. Thank you very much, Kyle, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, It is um, one thing to witness uh, a genocide and to be engaged in it. Uh, And another thing uh, in the post-genocide to discern opportunities that have been lost uh, and in fact, a catastrophe that actually happened that might have been uh, avoided uh, if uh, there had been an engagement uh, by nation states to want to solve the problem and not just the UN as such. But in that uh, assessment, uh, there is a very specific arena uh, that never seems to have come to the fore uh, enough to influence uh, public opinion, uh, influence the legislative dimensions of parliaments uh, and ultimately hold uh, par- uh, legislative uh, elements uh, and parliament and the state uh, accountable for deciding to or not to uh, 
engage in the prevention of mass atrocities, let alone uh, the intervention when we know uh, things are, are already ongoing and catastrophic. And so uh, I've uh, been quite involved uh, when I became a senator in taking up some of the initiatives that people were working on uh, mass atrocity prevention, like Kofi Annan had set up an advisory uh, group uh, of which Garth Evans, Madame Ogata, Desmond Tutu, myself, uh, we were involved in looking at how we could influence and provide input to the uh, to the uh, Secretary General. And one of the things we did see was the ability to get into a country early, very, very early, with maybe a small flag, not a big flag, a small flag, and, and start uh, influencing uh, that country in regards to potentials of scenarios going to mass abuses of human rights and mass atrocities. And uh, at the time, we were looking at eminent persons, but I then turned very much to the fact that why aren't more legislators getting involved uh, beyond their borders to engage, let alone inside? So I see us being involved outside, yes, beyond the, the nation, as the part of the, le the, the le legislative branch, not the executive branch. And also I see very much inside. Inside, uh, there is a need amongst the different parliaments, of course, to bring far more coalition uh, and uh, be able to interface uh, in a way by establishing deliberate focal points in the legislative groups uh, that could, in fact, create a network of communicating focal groups in regards to uh, mass atrocity prevention. We've asked governments to do it, but why aren't legislators engaged in also having that sort of thematic very much part of their role, uh, both in an advocacy role, uh, but also in influencing public opinion and engagement? We do have special privileges. We've, we have the ability uh, to uh, communicate with the population. We have a privileged position in regards to the, the public and the media. Uh, we have a voice individually as parliamentarians within our own countries to be able to express it and demonstrate the courage and determination to do that. However, uh, trying to do it as an individual is sometimes very difficult, and that's where I uh, turned to the Montreal Institute of Genocide Studies at the time when I was a senator and said I wanted to create an all-party, both houses, uh, genocide prevention group. That is to say, a grouping of legislators uh, that would uh, sit and meet on occasion, uh, which was about every six weeks or so, and we would educate, we would inform, we would pass on information to pass that information not only to those who were attending these meetings, but all the legislative branch uh, of the uh, governments. And in so doing, we were able to build uh, a cohesive entity that ultimately kept feeding, educating, informing uh, the legislators of these matters and uh, attracting their attention by them and their staffs and educating them on what was going on. I think that the two things that I would like to bring forward is one, 
that uh, we should have focal points within our legislative bodies that are concentrating on particularly this subject of mass abuse of human rights based on the, the R2P demands, based on the, the will to intervene work that we did, based on the, the, the need to prevent uh, conflicts and conflicts going to genocide. And the other side uh, of that is, is that uh, the parliamentarians amongst themselves group and feed each other this information, educate, and they become activists in their communities, but mostly in their nation by having such privileged access to media, to public opinion, to a uh, position of prestige to which people expect them to express themselves and not simply be the voices of the party. So that's a, a short burst uh, of which a general and a senator are not used to brevity. And so I'll start with that anyways. Thank you. Thank you, General Dallaire. And um, I think it's a nice transition because uh, I think when you were in the Genocide Prevention Group, um, twice the past uh, UN Secretary General Special Advisor in Genocide Prevention came to Canada and, and actually met and spoke at the group, both Francis Dieng and Adama Dieng. So it's now, we're almost like a virtual GPG we have here today. So I'd like to pass the floor to the new uh, Special Advisor on Trust Prevention, Alice Deritu. Thank you very much, Kyle, uh, for for this opportunity to sit on this uh, on this panel. Um, so, excellencies, distinguished colleagues, and uh, dear friends, and thank you to to the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. And and I may, I must first uh, start by saying that it's an honor, a real honor, to be in the presence of uh, General Dalia, and um, we can't thank you enough for what you did and what you continue to do to prevent genocide in the world. So, and uh, we know that atrocity prevention is a global and collective agenda for which all national in, in, and um, international actors have a role to play. And um, when I was preparing this, I was thinking that about parliaments uh, and, and how they are made up of politicians and uh, how historically identity has always been an important rhetorical resource often used for nationalistic purposes as a political value. So in knowing how often people get away uh, with identity mobilization on the basis of nationalism, uh, then I ask myself, how do parliaments lead the way in showing that identities and differences need not always lead to violence? And I ask this because history teaches us that politicians mobilizing on the basis of identity can be a precursor to the commission of atrocity crimes. Um, we saw that in Rwanda, we saw that in Srebrenica, um, that um, dehumanization of the other led by politicians was present long before violence broke out and atrocity crimes were committed. So parliaments um, have many roles. Um, of course, they can identify ways in which governments and institutions can intervene at the early warning signs of potential violence and then link that to early action, which is so important by calling for decisive action before atrocities begin. Parliaments can call on their governments uh, to criminalize genocide denial and to bring genocide perpetrators to trial. They can call for full cooperation on the, the issue of um, genocide deniers and perpetrators who are still at large and who use social media platforms uh, to spread hate. They can uh, propose and lead advocacy for the establishment of um, an annual parliamentary debate on atrocity crimes prevention or even the establishment of uh, parliamentary committees on, on atrocity prevention. 
Parliamentarians can also interpret atrocity crimes prevention in the development and adoption of relevant legislation. Um, they, this would be legislation, for example, uh, related to criminal accountability and redress for past and present atrocity crimes. So that, for instance, uh, parliaments have a role to play in um, states' adoption of very critical international instruments, such as the International Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, um, which I'm working so hard to get um, more states to ratify, or even the, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And beyond criminal accountability, there are so many other um, transitional justice measures, especially in post-conflict societies, um, which are often part of negotiated peace agreements that uh, require parliamentary adoption or ratification. And um, parliaments are also central to monitoring status of this ratification and um, implementation of core instruments of international human rights. So I, I would just like to stop by saying that par parliaments, there are so many things that parliaments can do um, but uh, they can also pose questions to members of the executive, including to heads of governments or states, on actions taken to fulfill duties to prevent atrocity crimes. They can raise questions about the role of institutions such as peace building commissions, national human rights institutions, or persons in supporting atrocity crimes prevention. They can develop proposals for strengthening this role when needed. And they can also ask of such institutions to provide briefings, publish reports on atrocity crime risks, or include specific uh, consideration of risks within um, reports or even uh, provide um, recommendations on steps needed for atrocity crimes prevention, including on strengthening uh, inhibitors of, of, of atrocity crimes. So I'd like to stop here and uh, then we can engage further later on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Alice. Now I would like to pass the floor to David Katain, the Secretary General of Parliamentarians for Global Action. Thank you very much, Kyle, and it's always a big pleasure for me to be with you at uh, Concordia University for the fantastic job that the Montreal Institute uh, is doing all the time. And uh, to be honest, uh, for me, it's uh, quite an emotional meeting because um, I was in Arusha in 1995, uh, setting up in my previous capacity the Arusha School on International Criminal Law, International and Humanitarian Law and Human Rights, as a way to um, integrate um, African young lawyers and senior law students into this global movement for the fight against impunity. And uh, in the first day of the first session of this school, which um, lasted for three years until 1998, the first document we analyzed was a fax signed by General Romeo Dallaire in which he asked the United Nations Dep Department for Peacekeeping Operation and the, the member states in the council through, through that department to give him a mandate that could have helped him to try to prevent a genocide that then uh, eminent uh, scholars and uh, researchers describe as a preventable genocide. So. Um, uh, I know that General Dallaire um, have done a lot in this field and, and I want to really pay a tribute for his legacy and uh, his uh, incredible commitment. Today, Parliamentarians for Global Action is honored by the fact that the chairman of the all-party parliamentary group for uh, genocide prevention in Canada, Honorable Ali Esassi from the House of the Commons, is also a PGA board member. He was elected in Kiev in 2018 and uh, his mandate has been renovated and he's providing enormous leadership in our organization, especially as a son of um, 
immigrants from um, a country, Iran, that is plagued by totalitarianism and gross human rights violations. I'm also uh, very happy to be today for the first time in a panel with the new um, um, special representative of the UN Secretary General for the Prevention of Genocide, uh, Ms. Nderitu, because her mandate is crucial to make sure that the organization remembers what has been set up to, which is, yes, to prevent World War III, but also to restore international peace and security. Can there be international peace and security in the face of mass atrocity? It can't. Mass atrocities, by definition, they pose a threat to the peace. They can even breach the peace because of the repercussions that they have, these mass atrocities at the domestic, but also regional, cross-regional and global level, as we see with the influx of refugees. And their mandate is therefore absolutely essential. Um, as every uh, academic uh, meeting, because Concordia, after all, is a university, I want to contribute to it also by giving to the participants some sort of um, uh, readings to be made to, to learn more about this. And the first reading that I would recommend, it's about what do we mean by the terms atrocity preventions. And here I'm happy to point out to the old but still good responsibility to protect document that the International Commission set up by the Canadian government did at the end of the 90s, which led to the notion of responsibility to protect. Regarding the role of the parliamentarians, we certainly have put together uh, on behalf of PGA, but above all, thanks to the leadership of the Montreal Institute, uh, an handbook on preventing mass atrocities and violent extremists, which was put up uh, a few years ago. It's still available online. It's a free publication and it gives really a full-fledged toolbox of um, uh, types of interventions that parliamentarians can undertake. And I will not repeat what so eloquently the general and uh, Mr. Ritu already said, but there is one issue I want to focus on, which is impunity. Impunity for the atrocities of the present and of the past is fueling the, 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 the atrocities of tomorrow. When Adolf Hitler was confronted in one of his first cabinet of the uh, Third Reich in Berlin with a question from one of his ministers who said, is this final solution uh, compatible with international law? Wouldn't we have consequences? if implemented, and apparently the Führer said, this is documented in, in of course, a document said, who, who remembers about the Armenians after all? What happened to the Armenians, uh, we are aware of. It was a genocide in the current terms. Of course, the convention came into being in 1948, but there were already widespread and systematic massacres that were in violations of the A Convention of 1907 and other instruments of international humanitarian law. So they were still mass atrocities done with complete impunity because the second peace treaty after World War I gave a total blanket imp immunity and impunity to the leaders of the Ottoman Empire uh, in the name of real politics. So this lesson was learned after World War II, but has been not yet learned enough for what we have been watching today, repeating again and again. 
And I think the most credible response to the uh, absolute imperative to end impunity comes from the uh, Rome Statute of the ICC, which is the third book that I have here, maybe in an old version, but it's amended with the Kampala amendments on the crime of aggression. And I think what, we are, what the missing link is for us today is the universality of this court. The main superpowers have not yet agreed to be bound by the jurisdiction of this tribunal. And they have applied uh, a principle of selectivity that is really unacceptable and it's undermining the rule of law. The rule of law is based on the equality of all before the law. So we need to make it crystal clear that if you commit a genocide, you will be punished. So the cost of the atrocity is higher than the uh, benefit that you will have by remaining in power, not forever. There is no immunity. There is no functional immunity for this crime. When Adolf Hitler committed it, he was a criminal and he should be brought to justice, committed suicide, so he couldn't be brought to the Nuremberg Tribunal. But that's the reality of every totalitarian dictator or every rebel leader or every head of a terrorist organization of every individual regardless of his or her nationality, who would like to commit these crimes. We need to make them costly. We need to make them difficult. We have to do that with the, with, with the political will. And the place where the people are represented are the parliaments. So there are parliamentarians are the representative of the people if they are elected democratically. And this is the best place where to create a global consensus against impunity and for the prevention of mass atrocities. Thank you, David, for those comments and for sharing um, both the uh, original um, uh, report, the R2P report, um, and also for mentioning uh, the handbook um, on preventing violent extremism atrocities that, that we produced together a couple of years ago. So we'll share that online and with, with the guests after and, and also share it on, on Twitter. Um, I would like to maybe now turn to a general discussion. So we have a good number of people following us. Uh, people are starting to pose questions, but I'm going to hold off a few more minutes before uh, taking those. But I would like to turn the table because I think, I think there's a, a key element from our work at MIGS that we've we know the UN has a key role in, in, in preventing atrocity crimes, uh, but very often the UN doesn't have all the tools or the support it needs to do so. And I'm wondering, uh, maybe starting with John Dallaire, um, if you could think about what could parliamentarians do to support the UN with the goal of preventing mass atrocity crimes? Floor is yours, General Dallaire. Yeah, we, well, there is the, the UN Parliamentary Association that, that exists, but I, I am of the school that although parliamentarians first and foremost are responsible for the safety and the continued well-being of their citizens, the ones they represent specifically, individually, and of course the, the, as a global body, uh, their nation, there is a, a requirement that we must go beyond our borders because we now have a generation that's, that's global, the, 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 the under 25, the generation without borders, they're already operating globally uh, through the revolution of communications. And so we've got uh, this ability to influence uh, youth 
uh, into moving into the realm of the globe, of the whole of humanity. And so human rights to them is the whole of the world. It's not just a local and, and, and national uh, affair. That's why parliamentarians should have an eye beyond their borders in regards to uh, not only human rights, uh, because they usually have a committee on that, but on how nations fall into catastrophic failure, imploding, and then ultimately not see early warning signs nor intervene in them uh, to ultimately see mass atrocities and genocide. That, that angle uh, of humanity that is so much of a source of the frictions inside of nations, inside of nations, let alone regions, that side simply doesn't seem to come to the fore on the legislative side. It does, yeah, committee discussions and committee meetings uh, that exist uh, for le legislative work, but you don't see that becoming a dynamic force. And because of that, uh, it doesn't seem to have a reach into the UN to, to hold uh, the UN uh, not only accountable, but engaging it in wanting to bring solutions. You know, the, the, uh, Kofi Annan had 68 countries sign up to provide troops should uh, a uh, atrocity scenario present itself. It was after the Cambodian affair, of course. Uh, and uh, uh, when he called on countries to provide support, political, resource, uh, military also, uh, all of them refused. How can the then executive get away with signing up to something and then uh, not doing it? It's only because the legislative is not holding him accountable. And if without those focal points and without a construct within the legislative group, uh, we won't get that input. And they can't do it unless they're educated and engaged beyond their borders in things that will be ultimately a risk to them because catastrophes that happen in other countries will migrate to our countries through refugees, through uh, rage in these, con in these camps that turn into uh, extremism and, and terrorism, through diasporas that get locked in and, and get engaged in, in it. And we saw it in Toronto a few years back when the Tamils stopped traffic because they didn't like what the Canadian government was doing. Legislative bodies have got to be more proactive and engaged in the international sphere that will bring influence on the country. Thank you, General Dallaire. I'd now like to, to pass Alice and particularly to have your thoughts, Alice, on, on how parliamentarians can, can either work or advocate to support the UN, particularly your office, because your office, I understand, does important work, but sometimes you don't get as many resources that are required. So I'd like to maybe get your thoughts on, on how parliamentarians around the world could support the UN and, and, and the important work that you do. Um, you are right um, in terms of um, not getting support in some of these um, cases. We have to, um, when, when violence is about to begin or when it has already begun, so much work rests within our office in terms of verifying um, what is going on on the ground. 
and uh, it uh, would be a really good thing if national parliaments can um, explore uh, opportunities um, to conduct regular atrocity risk assessments and report on them and uh, whether and they can do this by proposing that this can be undertaken by by government um, by peace building commissions or national human rights institutions um, or any or academic civil society initiatives um, to reflect on national risks and um, for example right now as as we speak in ethiopia uh, we've been engaging the ethiopian human rights commission in terms of um, working together with us in developing a framework of analysis for the prevention of atrocity and the, we already have our um, own framework of analysis but we were asking them to, to draft a contextual um, framework of analysis and that would be very useful and um, that's one thing that um, parliament can push uh, national institutions to do and then the other thing that um, we uh, have seen um, before, even before I began working in this particular office, is how underfunded um, atrocity prevention measures are. And the national parliaments can, can raise questions in, in budget debates about the allocation of resources for atrocity prevention. And um, I've also noticed that uh, often when you're speaking about atrocity prevention, there's a tendency to mainstream. And when you mainstream something, then uh, like atrocity prevention, then you lose it because nobody is accountable. So uh, very important for, for parliaments um, to, to not only raise uh, these questions in budget debates, but also make decisions in terms of allocation of, of money. And uh, they can even um, ratify the proposal of the national executive or, or even rectify uh, when necessary. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Um, so I think a key lesson uh, is that parliamentarians can lobby, act, and call on governments to support the UN in your office, uh, and that's politically, financially. Um, I think there's more support than I would argue. Even in Canada, the atrocity prevention community is underfunded. There isn't a lot of money for uh, think tanks and organizations working on this, so we have to, nationally in Canada, we have to pick the game up, but also internationally. I'd now like to turn to David. David, um, you talked a bit about the ICC, but could you reflect perhaps on, on, on what the PGA is doing to support the UN and, and what some of your individual members are doing uh, to support the, the UN, um, UN multilateralism to prevent uh, atrocity crimes? Yes, yes, uh, Kyle. And uh, of course, what I also said before is that I agreed with those who spoke before me. So if you make me speak the third, then they always have, and you have such uh, incredible speakers, they already cover the topic very well. And let me maybe summarize what Parliamentarians of Global Action is also trying to do in our modest capacity. After all, we are the largest network of individual parliamentarians in 136 countries. And um, certainly our biggest campaign has been historically since 1989, the creation of a permanent international criminal jurisdiction to make the promise of Nuremberg permanent and, and viable. And we still continue to believe that the real problem is that there is not an international rule of law. We have a domestic rule of law. So if I want to commit an atrocity in the United States or in my own country of nationality, Italy, I will go to jail. But if I am an head of state and I'm planning to do this type of thing, maybe I can have a number of um, variables that can determine whether this plan is 
possible or not in the mid-long term. And the lesson learned for, from the mass atrocities in the Darfur region of the Sudan is that sooner or later, your people will remove you from power if you are such an abusive and, um, of course, uh, suspected criminal uh, head of state, because, of course, he, Mr. al-Bashir is protected by the presumption of innocence and he has the right to a fair trial. But the pressure was uh, mounting from many sides, and this included, of course, the, the Darfuri diaspora in the world, the victims, and the international community that united um, themselves around their cause. And then finally, in 2019, Mr. Bashir, after 13, 13 years that he had been indicted for, for war crimes and crimes against humanity, and 12 years of indictment of genocide, he was removed from power, now he's in jail, is uh, being um, uh, tried for corruption uh, crimes, but hopefully soon he might also be uh, investigated, prosecuted, and, and tried for genocide and other mass atrocities. It, as the case may be, parliamentarians have an essential role to play because for years and years they have defended that process, for example. Through PGA, they spoke in the consultative assembly of parliamentarians on the ICC and the rule of law and our meetings, defending the prosecutor and the court from any type of uh, efforts to politically assassinate the court. This came from the Sudan, came from the African Union, came from other powers. And the African parliamentarians, more than 450 members of PGA, said, no, we, no, not only we want this case to go forward, we want more cases in Africa and more cases wherever these atrocities are committed. So changing the paradigm of impunity and creating an international rule of law as we have it domestically will completely change the landscape which are making mass atrocities almost impossible in a functioning democracy. And here also, in terms of prevention, what are the root causes of most of the atrocities today? So this is also a responsibility for parliamentarians. One of them is certainly ideology, because it was in the name of the ideology of the National Socialist Party that uh, it happened what it happened in, in Europe uh, and the rest of the world in the, in the 1940s. And it's in the name of the ideology of ISIS or Daesh, what happened in, in, in Raqqa, Mosul, and the regions, uh, the territories uh, occupied by the so-called self-proclaimed Islamic State, which is anti-Islamic and anti-state. And you have so many other situations where in the name of an ideology, mass atrocities are perpetrated. So the role of parliamentarians is to debate where is the ideology coming from? Who is supporting it? Where are the funds coming from to support schools or charities or educational establishments in which these ideologies are thought? Now we have, for example, a major initiative by a member of parliament in Afghanistan denouncing the fact that the Taliban are still enslaving children who are then sent into certain schools on the other side of the border in Pakistan to be indoctrinated and then come back to Afghanistan as uh, uh, sons and daughters of the jihad in the name of a anti-religious interpretation of Islam that creates martyrs, that destroys communities and targets civilian victims of the armed conflict. So 
this is going on today and somebody is funding these schools, maybe from Saudi Arabia, maybe from uh, the uh, other uh, private entities around the world, and this has to stop. Um, similarly, in the name of other ideologies, other atrocities are committed in the name of fundamentalist Christianism, the Lord Resistance Army um, enslaved also children and, and did what it did in northern Uganda, and now they are in Central African Republic. We also have um, regimes that are utilizing mass violence and mass atrocities to perpetrate their power. These are sovereign states. So that you have heads of states traveling. They could be arrested and, and, and prosecuted. But in the UN, there is um, a very retrogressive debate on the fact that they would be covered by immunities when they travel. So there is, there is a lot to be done for parliamentarians as uh, oversighters of the executive power to tell their government, take the position that is necessary at the UN. And as, as General Dallaire said, make your act consequential to your international legal obligations if there is also the need to deploy ground troops because, because drones don't control territories. So if you want to stabilize a region and bring back the rule of law, you need policemen on the, on the street. Who's going to give them if the territorial state is collapsed and vanished? So there is an enormous work to do. It, we have to go back to the ABC of the UN Charter. Um, and I think uh, it's unpopular and inconvenient in many cases, but uh, we, we will never give up. Thank you, David. Um, and I'll just put on the on the screen here um, for those who want to see the uh, the report, uh, the handbook for parliamentarians on uh, violent extremism and atrocity prevention that we produce with PGA. Uh, it's the link here. Uh, we'll, we'll share it with everyone by email. But it's it's a good step about what to deal with non-state actors like ISIS and, and, and those groups that, that David was talking about. Um, so I'm gonna pose one last question before we turn the audience. Um, I'm wondering if, and I'll start um, in the same order uh, with John Jolaire and then Alice and David, but I'm wondering if there are any new tools or new models that you think need to be scaled up. So I'll give an example. There's been a lot of focus lately on Magnitsky sanctions where parliamentarians are working to impose targeted economic sanctions against individuals responsible for atrocity crimes. Is this something that 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 can be? Um, it's a new tool that can be considered and new models. The uh, the all party group for prevention of genocide in the Canadian Parliament. There's also one in the UK Parliament. And is this something that that could um, be useful for parliamentarians around the world to to develop and work on? So, um, Joan Delaire, let's start with you. Think about new tools and new models. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I. Thank you very much, Kyle, because that is exactly what is needed, is the creation of a new capability within legislative, the legislative uh, branch to be able to not only engage, but, but uh, build momentum within it uh, to influence ultimately the executive branches of their own countries and ultimately be able to coalesce with other uh, parliaments uh, that may have a similar desire to uh, bring about pressure and, and public opinion even uh, in regards to uh, preventing mass atrocities or, or genocide uh, or uh, holding uh, individuals accountable uh, for having conducted such actions 
uh, and reinforcing indirectly. Yes, I agree with uh, David, uh, the International Criminal Court. But uh, let me give you two examples of how we can they can do things like 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 this. We in Canada we know there are genocides that have not been arrested that they exist, uh, and and we only we only got arrested one uh, who was brought to trial in Canada, uh, and the trial cost nearly two million dollars. And uh, when I queried why there was no more actions taken on the impunity side of the house inside our own country where the law permits us now of course to uh, hold these people accountable and try them in our country for actions they've taken elsewhere and they said they just didn't have the resources so one aspect is do you as parliamentarians keep an eye on such nuances of of uh, resource allocation by your country to the let's say the international section on your ju justice department in bringing people to uh, to uh, court and holding them accountable. The other one is is the follow up on that. And I uh, the follow up on the uh, Arusha uh, uh, tribunal where we've had people who were sent uh, to jail for life are now getting uh, uh, being able to leave after uh, um, a number of years, some fourteen, some twenty years. 25 years uh, of being in, in, in jail. I, I testified there because first, it didn't have capital punishment. I didn't want that. There's no way. But second, it had life sentences. That meant that the person spent life in prison and was buried in the prison graveyard if necessary. That was critical to hold people accountable ad vitam aeternam. We can coalesce movements like the GPG that we have in, in Canada and coalesce with others like we tried with the, with the British and that's the, uh, still floating, bringing other parliaments together, create focal points on specific agendas like this amongst the parliamentary, the legislative group and nurture it and feed it uh, by individual parliamentarians and their staffs getting engaged and educating. Educate, educate, educate your colleagues. Thank you, General Dallaire. Um, so I'd now like to turn to Alice, but thinking also about new tools, new models, I'm also reminded, uh, Alice, that your office with the UN Secretary General has passed a, um, a roadmap for dealing with uh, with hate speech. Um, and and, and I, I'm not sure if governments and parliamentarians are supporting that, I'm wondering if, if there's something that you could discuss on on, on that issue. Um, thank you. I, I'll start with the tools and then I'll get to the, the strategic plan for the prevention of hate speech. So the, the, the pandemic has, has changed um, many things, the way we do things. It has changed quite a number of the tools that we used to use and um, it has um, also connected us in a completely different way. And I'm thinking of um, when uh, previously, one of the things that um, I did was uh, work with a few friends to set up an early warning platform that linked early warning and early response. And we used a mobile phone. We did a study of how many mobile phones there were um, at that time in Kenya and, um, and how they were used and the, the methods of using them. And then uh, because most of the mobilization for violence was done through the cell phone, 
then uh, we decided to use the cell phone for the same to con to to do the opposite. If people are mobilizing for violence with the with the with the um, cell phone, then we use it um, to mobilize for for peace or to de-escalate violence. So, um, in terms of new tools, um, we are still at that point where we are not engaging local communities enough. Uh, we, we still have um, lots of top-down approaches in terms of atrocity prevention, and that um, also includes um, the parliamentarians um, that we are speaking about today, lots of top-down approaches, yet so much information can come from the ground that we are not tapping into. And uh, for example, when we were working on with the mobile phones, we distributed very many mobile phones and we would tell people, just look through the window and tell us what you are seeing. And then they would tell us, okay, this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing children not going to school. Um, I'm seeing people standing in small groups. And of course, all those become um, risk factors indicating a uh, potential for, for, for violence and ultimately uh, atrocity crimes. So, so in terms of uh, tools, I can say that right now, many people can't travel around the world, but um, we've been able to meet a lot of people virtually. Actually, people would never have been able to, to meet um, or that would have needed different circumstances to meet in terms of uh, getting there, flying and everything. And right now we were having a conversation with um, some African women and um, we've realized that since the pandemic started, there are so many local communities, uh, women in local communities who've been involved in very high level meetings because they can um, connect uh, virtually. So uh, this is a tool that we need to fine tune further in terms of what we can do with it in terms of, uh, of preventing atrocities and um, how we can then establish contacts with parliamentarians uh, from different countries and in regional organizations. Um, so that they can uh, maintain mutually supportive networks with these local communities and, and forge um, relationships um, with, with uh, people and parliamentarians, for example, in countries facing atrocity crimes, and then support them through exchanges of, of, of good practices. So, so quite, a bit need, quite a bit needs to be done in terms of exploring um, not the negatives of the pandemic, but is there any positive that the pandemic has, has um, brought to us? So um, conversely, to answer your second question, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has actually exacerbated um, existing trends of, of, of hate speech um, that, that actually scapegoat and stigmatize individuals or groups uh, along identity lines. And this is true everywhere in, in the whole world. And um, we, our office, were, um, in uh, 2019, the Secretary General launched the UN Strategy and Plan of Action on hate speech. So my office, the, the UN Office on Genocide Prevention and Responsibility to Protect, is a UN focal point on the implementation of this strategy and plan of action. So the document contains um, 13 commitments and it's very comprehensive because it calls for enhancing uh, UN efforts to address the root causes of hate speech, including uh, marginalization, discrimination, you know, exclusion, inequality, poverty. It's, it's very, very, very broad and lack of basic education. Um, has it been well received? Um, yes, we've been working. Uh, we have a two-pronged approach. So working with resident coordinators, UN resident coordinators in each country, so that they uh, mobilize uh, people in that country to develop their own strategic action plan. And quite a number have been developed. We have one in Ukraine, we have one in Ethiopia, Cote d'Ivoire, um, in, um, in Sri Lanka, in quite a number of countries. And the other approach is to actually work with communities and uh, ask them to develop their own 
strategy, plan of action on, on hate speech to combat hate speech within their, their communities. We have um, right now um, uh, one that is happening as we speak in, in Nigeria, and it's, it's been very, very um, eye-opening to, to see uh, communities framing for themselves what they think hate speech means and what they think um, hate speech that leads to atrocities, how it looks like and what can be done about it to watch them trace um, stereotypes and where they came from and became prejudices and became actual discrimination. It, it's, it's been a very, very rich experience. So, so the, um, the, the UN strategy and, and plan of action contains uh, many options in terms of addressing short-term dynamics um, and including um, engagement with new and traditional media and using technology. And just um, a week ago, uh, we had um, a series of, of conversations with the um, social media companies, um, the leadership of social media companies, YouTube, uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. And um, we are working with them in terms of uh, putting together um, hate speech uh, plans of action on, on, on social media. So quite a bit is happening, uh, Kyle, on, on the ground around um, this UN strategy and plan of action on, on hate speech. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alice. We're doing a lot of work on online hate, so it's great to hear that that you're leading that out of the UN in New York and, and with uh, with big tech in Silicon. Um, I'd like to turn to David. David, um, maybe if you could just briefly comment on Magnitsky sanctions. I know you recently uh, organized uh, a session with former Member of Parliament Erwin Kotler on Magnitsky sanctions. Could you briefly talk about what these are and, and, and how they're a new tool? Magnitsky sanctions are individual sanctions targeting the financial assets and also in, in a, to a certain extent the, the international travel of individuals who, who love to be in power, have a lot of money, enjoy that power by being uh, in the world scene. So by curtailing their access to bank accounts, visa cards, MasterCard and other financial tools that they might have or by, uh, you know, freezing their villas in the in Sardinia or in the Côte d'Azur or in other places, then you are really disincentivating their behavior that may be of sponsoring, financing, supporting mass atrocities in the countries in which they operate. So it has, it has a value. It doesn't replace justice. It's not a form of punishment. It's a preventative measure. It's an executive measure. So parliamentarians have a very important role to play in bringing to the attention of uh, the government. Well, you have these individual or those individuals that allegedly are involved in this mass atrocity, and they have an interest in our country, in the European Union, in the United States, in Canada, in the UK. So intervene and do something because we cannot be a safe haven for their vacations or things like that. So it has an impact but it does not replace justice. That needs to be very, very clear. And also it needs to, re um, to make sure that innocent people are not targeted because we have seen some uh, incredible mistakes, especially in the so-called global war on terror, which unfortunately is part of the problem of having um, uh, created more hatred in the world and more mass atrocities in response to other mass atrocities. So it's, it's a very problematic field and there is not a silver bullet that will solve it. Our position on behalf of parliamentarians for global action is that we need democratic renewal and human rights as a way to prevent. If human rights of all, including all the minorities, are respected, if there is a tight control on arms 
whether they are small arms or light weapons or whether they are weapons of mass destruction, which are prohibited uh, in most frameworks and absolutely prohibited in terms of the bacteriological, biological and chemical weapons, then we are more safe and secure and we can better prevent. So it's, it's really a full toolbox of measures that needs to be there. Parliamentarians have a very important oversight function vis-a-vis -vis the government. So the budget tool is very, very important to resource those institutions at the national level that are tasked with judicial, prosecutorial, and also educational preventative uh, mandates against atrocities. Uh, the aid speech is, is illegal. You cannot aid and incite to violence, incite to genocide. It direct and public incitement to genocide is even punishable under the Genocide Convention and the Rome Statute. So, we did a, a global uh, code of parliamentary con of, a, a global um, code of the democratic conduct that we address to all parliamentarians of the world, which is on our website that really targets these um, uh, fake news, uh, false accusations, hate speech that may fuel um, uh, the preparation of, of atrocities. And, and going to the point done so well by um, Alice on technology and the new opportunities that we have, there is one point that maybe I could make to integrate their excellent presentation, which is satellite imagery. So satellite surveillance would be extremely useful if done in a way that would photograph villages, communities, cities, when they're peacefully, when everything is, is working in a peaceful manner, and then making shots at the moment in which churches are burned, uh, buildings are destroyed, what was there before and after the mass atrocities is, is perpetrated. In that way, we will help a lot to defray the costs at the international or domestic jurisdictional level, and also will send a signal to everyone that at least when it's not cloudy, uh, cloudy and when the weather allows, we will know exactly what was happening on the ground. We know that this technology exists. Unfortunately, only certain major powers have access to them. But what we need to do through the UN and other tools and our national parliaments is make sure that this technology is given for the purpose of atrocity prevention. And finally, parliamentarians are advocates. So if I can dissent on one point made here, I don't agree that parliamentarians are some sort of a top-down voice. If they are elected by the people, they are a bottom-up voice because they are accountable to their constituents and they have to be re-elected the next times if they don't do a good job. So they are, they are uh, like every other person in society, bound by the rule of law, bound by the constitution. They have to be law-abiding. They have to be peace-loving. They have to serve the people under the constitution. So they are not bottom up. They're not an elite. That's what they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be an elite. Unfortunately, to the contrary, those who commit mass atrocities are perceived to be part of an elite that is above the law. This is the perception. We have seen it in so many cases in Africa, in Asia, in Eastern Europe, in Latin America. And this is where we need to really change the policies of major international institutions. So parliamentarians can change domestic laws, but they also have to have a very strong oversight and impulse 
on the policies, on the foreign policies of their executives so that international laws are enforced. And here, my uh, request on behalf of PGA to the special representative for the prevention of genocide and other mass atrocities at the UN is to ask the, sec the executive office of the secretary general to include a very strong emphasis on prevention in the Our Common Agenda report that the Secretary General is preparing for the next General Assembly mandated by the 75th General Assembly that last year during the pandemic, nobody really, you know, uh, paid attention, but they, 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 they issued a very good resolution calling for an assessment 75 years after the adoption of the UN Charter in San Francisco. So I think if every organization will become much more proactive, also at the domestic level, policymakers, especially parliamentarians, will be able to play a much stronger role. Thank you, David. So we're almost at the end and we had a lot of questions. I'm going to put one, one uh, comment up on the screen. I'd like uh, John Dallaire, Alice, and David, maybe to just make a, a short statement on it or, or whether they agree with it or not or, or reflected the parliamentarians, but I'm going to put this up. So um, Mike, the idealist, and we need more idealists in the world, Mike, so I, I like your name. Uh, he says, too often when we talk about prevention, we're talking about immediate emergency level prevention. We need to look further upstream to truly prevent genocide and mass atrocities. Um, what do you think of this? I, I think this is probably the best question we've received. Joan Dallaire, uh, would you have anything to say on this? I think the greatest weakness we have is early warning uh, and early warning uh, of um, abuses of human rights that are evolving to the extent that they then can continue to degenerate either by the government or by non-state actors to the extent of being pushed to mass atrocities and even genocide. And this early warning can be how, in fact, societies are um, handling uh, the fate of certain groups, of course, that, that uh, we Darfur is a perfect example of that. Uh, but I see early warning also on uh, how the women are being abused and how women can, in fact, find themselves caught up in the controversies of these complex scenarios uh, in their societies where ultimately they are subjugated to significant abuses of human rights. I think also the recruitment and use of children, how children are used, how they're treated, how they are, are they going to school, not what, what is happening to the children and the use thereof. Uh, those are early warning signals uh, that yes, it can degenerate. And if you don't intervene at that time, uh, then your prevention will be very difficult because you probably will end up coming in too late, even after the scenario has exploded. So early warning uh, instruments are critical. Thank you, General Dallaire. Alice, would you have any closing comments on prevention? Oh. Uh, Alice, you're, you're, you're muted, if you could turn your... Thank you. Um, the, the, the question that was put out was uh, very clear because uh, I think what Mike, the idealist, was saying that we should look at the root causes of, of, of um, whatever is happening, that we shouldn't uh, be addressing um, the, the tip of the iceberg. We should be looking at what's below 
the, the, the ice bag or in Africa where we don't have ice bags, we talk about <laughs> crocodiles. <laughs> the, the nose of the crocodile um, is, is what we are usually um, running towards, yet the whole body of, of the crocodile is under the, the water. So um, agree um, with you. Yes, this week we completed an analysis, uh, conflict um, analysis of, of countries in the world uh, with internal, with our office, and looked at countries from the perspectives of um, prevention. And uh, prevention cannot be just as a matter of emergency. There are some countries that do not need emergency prevention, but they, they are the countries that um, I would refer to them as countries that have a fire without smoke. And um, when uh, General Dalia spoke earlier on about going in early and going in with a small flag, like a small flag at the beginning, that that's what essentially he was speaking to, speaking to the fact that um, we have to go upstream, we have to um, look um, more deeply in terms of what is this that is um, causing the issues that are going on on the ground. And um, I think David too has spoken about um, addressing uh, all these um, root causes of, of the ideologies. Where did they come from? Who created them? Who, who, who funds them? So, so really um, agree that uh, prevention is, is never should be just an emergency measure. It, it's full time. It works all the time, and and this goes against like some of the literature you'll you'll often find, like even the literature on um, mediation, for example, um, keeps talking about how um, conflict escalates and that there is a, a proper point for intervention. But really, in reality, when uh, you're mediating, the entry points are everywhere at every part of the conflict. So it's the same thing with uh, with atrocities that at entry points are everywhere, in places where you do not see the issues um, manifesting, um, in places where you can um, already see issues already manifesting and, and, and coming out and you're seeing things like demonstrations or, or open mobilizing, and in places where there is actually real atrocity. So prevention really is not an emergency measure, it's a full-time um, something that we should be doing from morning till evening every day. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Uh, David, I turn to you for um, for a closing comment or remark. Uh, thank you. And uh, of course, they have said, uh, Alice and uh, General Dallaire, the perfect uh, answers. What I can tell to Mike, the idealist, that if we live in a globalized world, we have globalization. That is, his name should be named, should be changed into Mike, the realist, because I fully <laughs> agree with him. It's not about looking at the emergency. Then it's too late. Then the disaster is there. It's about creating a framework, a framework in which all human rights are respected for all. And when in a society, all human rights are respected for all components of that society, nobody will put justice in their own hands and uh, you know, use violence, uh, express grievances, and uh, bring about retaliation, uh, hate, conflict, atrocity, renewed conflict, and so on and so forth. So the cycle of violence. So it's really commonsensical today in a globalized world not to be nationalist, not to be sovereignist, not to be unilateralist, not to be imperialist, not to be fundamentalist, not to be a violent extremist, but to be realistically idealist and accept all the human rights of all, 
and create society based on the rule of law, the supremacy of the law. This is the biggest change we need because unfortunately, international law is still governed by sovereign states who are putting before their national interest and then they look at the international or globalized interest. The two must overlap and become one. In that moment, we can really be credible in atrocity prevention. Parliament has a fundamental role to play because there is a democratic deficit in the global community, but the day will come because otherwise we are uh, deemed for self-destruction. As we have seen it, in the, it, it was in, inimaginable a few years ago that the climate change approach would have been so unanimously agreed upon now, even with the United States rejoining and China being at the forefront. So things will also have to move forward on the so-called uh, directly man-made catastrophes. Of course, also climate change is a man-made catastrophe, but it's uh, indirect. You know, it's we, we didn't think about the consequences of, of certain uh, progress. But now we also have to face uh, the consequences of the access to weaponry like uh, fully autonomous weapons or, um, uh, you know, what happened in, in between Armenia and Azerbaijan is really a revelation. You can win a war without soldiers on the ground and kill a lot of people and regain territory. So it is technology can change the contour of the perception of what should be done. And I would really hope that uh, leaderships will change and those who are irresponsible today will become responsible tomorrow and change um, what we are uh, seeking as the real future for humanity. Not the, an idealistic one, but a realistic one that will make us a viable uh, planet for the future. Well, um, I, with this, those closing comments, I'd like to thank Joan Dallaire, Alice and David for joining us. Um, uh, your comments were great. We're going to put this video online and also put it as a podcast so people can listen to it after. Um, I would just like to thank the Problem Terms of Global Action for being a promotional uh, and partner for this event. And just last comments, and I'm sure uh, John Dallaire, Migs, Distinguished Senior Fellow, agrees with me. Uh, Migs is, a, is welcome to be a partner working with PJ and the UN to increase the role of parliamentarians in the fight against mass atrocities. Thank you very much for joining us.